for myself is I've been trying to build something like a pyramid. Like, uh, what is what is my base? Like, what if if we had to break down the fundamental components that you need to have in place? Uh, what would they be? This is Glenn Murphy with NC Systema, and this is Systema for Life. Mark, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, it's my pleasure. Thanks so much for the invitation, Glenn. Yeah, bro. I've been. Uh, I've always enjoyed training with you up at um, Fight Club at um, Manning Space specifically. You're an incredible mover, and I like the way that you think and um, and work around uh, physical movement as a as a whole discipline. So maybe we can get into some aspects of of, of how your thought process has developed on that. Um, but first up, can you tell folks a little bit about yourself? Uh, what do you do for a living, and uh, how did you first get into Systema? Yeah, sure. So. Uh, when I was in university, I was uh, combing the internet as one does, going through. I'm not. I don't know if YouTube was as big back then, but I saw this clip of Vladimir, and I was like, "Wow, this looks really unique." And I was a little too intimidated to make the trek from downtown Toronto to uh, to Richmond Hill or Thornhill. All that way north, all the way. <laughs> you know, I like. I grew up in Calgary, so and then I came to Toronto. Toronto was already felt really big. Yeah. Uh, and then, uh, then I saw that Emmanuel had a school closer by, and I thought, okay, I can swing that. But I didn't pull the trigger right away. I, um, I guess I was still a little nervous. So uh, late 2004, my roommate and I checked out uh, Fight Club for the first time. Mm. And uh, all I remember was these grueling, uh, moving your partner around in a half squat exercises and, and my partner putting me down, probably because I, I broke my structure uh, but I didn't understand. I was like, why is this guy putting me down all the time? Hmm. But uh, it was a lot of fun. And so, yeah, um, I've trained with the manuals uh, since then. And um, I've been enjoying it. Uh, what I do for a living, I'm a human factors engineer. The way to describe that is that uh, engineers had for a long time just built the stuff. You know, we built the bridge, we built the car, we built the plane. Yeah. And there hadn't been a, um, a focus on how well that works with people. And uh, I think part of the origination for human factors really came in World War II. There were uh, pilots that were going through their landing checklists, but the landing gear wasn't coming down, and uh, they were essentially crashing their planes. And uh, what they discovered was that there's some switches. I think one switch was for the flap, and one switch was for the landing gear, and they were in the same place uh, mm. in the cockpit. So as a, as a user, you would go through your checklist, and you would you would be really sure that you had done that step because it felt the same and it was in the same location that you flipped that switch. But we discovered that there are certain human limitations around memory and attention and so on. And so that's really grown into a field of study of how people interact, not only with technology, but with how we organize incentives, uh, organizational policies, uh, teamwork, you name it. That's amazing, Matt. You're already my hero on this level. One of my biggest pet hates, and my wife will tell you this, is just poorly designed machinery where I'm like, what did they even think this was for? You know, things that, uh, you know, even something as simple as like a gas range, you know, a gas hob where they have those controls and they're all in a straight line, but they refer to like a, a three dimensional or at least a two dimensional array of things. And no matter how many times you do it, you're constantly like fiddling about with it. There was a guy um, I interviewed uh, for a science book that I was writing some years ago that featured some engineering called Henry Petrosky. Have you ever heard of him? He's a, no. he's a professor of engineering down here at NC state university and, he wrote this book, I think, called the, the Design of Useful Things, and he used uh, uh, yes. he used the paperclip as the example of how in engineering things are very rarely designed 
like perfectly that there's this myth that there's this perfect need and then engineers kind of go what would be the perfect thing to meet that need and usually the way that things happen is you have a problem like something's irritating the crap out of somebody <laughs> you know like a washing machine or you know something in his case like a paper that was held together or something by like these terrible whole binder things and then somebody comes up with something else that's just slightly less crappy than the thing before <laughs> it's enough to kind of ward off people's annoyance but it's never perfect design so i think this all you know this this focus on actually human factors and what it is we really want from our machines is essential because it's so common, right? You come across websites and you're driven insane by the number of hoops you're forced to jump through just to make a simple connection or book an appointment or something or, you know, machinery all the time. So definitely a pet peeve of mine. You've <laughs> so You're my hero already. Oh, yeah. Well, uh, it's tricky. Like, it actually really is tricky to design something that works well. Mm. Um, so it's a I, – I definitely sympathize. I think everyone has, has uh, come across some sort of software or device that's just – frustrates the hell out of you but um yeah. yeah but then when you're on the other side it's also really tricky to to make sure that it works well so yeah it must be difficult to predict all the ways in which people can be dumb like me and just not figure it out <laughs> well and also um you know the way we design things to start with they sometimes get used for purposes they weren't designed mm. and uh, that leads to some interesting outcomes as well yeah definitely cool Sorry, I digress. Anyway, so um, so you found uh, Emmanuel um, first and started training with him. So did that? Did your interest in movement predate Systema, or what? What was your kind of uh, what? Why were you looking at YouTube clips of Vladimir and martial arts in the first place? Did you have some kind of pretext for this? I think just being a young guy, I was afraid of getting beat up. You know, okay, uh, yeah, um, fear of like not really knowing what to do and. Uh, I probably wouldn't have known, like, I wouldn't have been able to articulate that at that age. Mm. But, uh, but like, you know, when I look back at it now, there's, there was that fear. And I remember Mikhail saying something about that, where people come to study martial arts. Um, many people start because of fear. And so I think that was the case for me. Yeah, it's a common thing, I think. And people, people start that way, and then they figure out there's, there's other benefits, you know, like learning about health and movement in general. Yeah, exactly. Once, once you get a little bit of a handle on that fear, then you can look farther and um look at so many of the other positive benefits that it can give you hmm. um so yeah for sure so so emmanuel's been your primary teacher over the years and how long how long ago is that how long have you been training uh so you started in late 2004 and uh and have been with him ever since you know i go to the odd seminar here and there but uh but yeah he's sort of like my system dad he was right. there from the beginning yeah <laughs> excellent cool and and how have you seen your focus in Sistema develop from those like early experiences and just kind of being put down and just trying to figure out how not to get squashed um, to, to what you're doing now? Because it's, it's hard for me now to, to imagine you as somebody inept and having trouble with their movement and figuring out what's going on with their body because you're, you're one of the most body aware people I've met, you know? So it's, uh, you've clearly put a lot of work into figuring out balance and figuring out biomechanics and figuring out like the tensegrity structure of the body and all of these things that, that some people go into in a, to a big degree in Sistema, but some people just kind of happily train away for years and hope that the methodology will sort it out for them. Oh, that's very kind of you. You know, I, I still i am sure that, you know, when you watch video of yourself, you're like, oh, my God, this looks terrible. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I'm told I even Vlad does that. I've, I've been told that. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah, he, watched, he told me he watches old videos. He's like, oh, this is very bad, too much tension. <laughs> I'm like, well, there's hope for the rest of us. Then. Well, you know, it's interesting. I guess everyone's Sistema journey is so personal. Uh, for the longest time at the beginning, I couldn't 
work takedowns at all. And so, you know, for the first couple of years, it was just trying to feel a little more comfortable in my own skin. Yeah. Um, and then after a while, I felt like I didn't really know what I was doing. And I think everyone feels that in Sistema periodically. Like, you have to rebuild yourself and look at it in a new way. Yeah. Uh, but I think it may be 2010, so five years into it, I went to a seminar uh, run by Constantine in Hong Kong. And man, that like, that got me so motivated. He just laid out this pathway uh, for psychological control, for, um, you know, building yourself up. And that was before the Sistema Manual had been published. Mm. But uh, it was just so systematic. And um, that really reinvigorated my interest, just maybe more on the psychological side, because his emphasis is so, um, so oriented that way. Yeah. Um, and so... After a while, I sort of, uh, I got distracted again. And then in 2015, I got interested in Olympic weightlifting. So that's with the snatch and clean and jerk where you take the barbell. Uh, the snatch is one clean movement overhead mm. into the bottom of a squat and then you lift it up. And then the clean and jerk, uh, you, people probably see this uh, in CrossFit. It's not actually... CrossFit uses Olympic weightlifting movements, but Olympic weightlifting is its own sport. And that's yeah. mm -hmm. distinct from powerlifting, which is uh, bench press, deadlift, squat. Right. But, um, but yeah, I got really interested in that. And uh, I was a bit cautious about doing it because I remember some high-level system instructors saying, like, you know, weight gives you too much tension, weightlifting. Um, if you have kettlebells, the good thing to do with them is to carry them out and put them in the garbage or something like that. Really? And wow. Yeah. <laughs> so I was, I was worried um, about what the effect would be. But for me, it was so interesting because it taught me a lot about mechanics, about um, torso rigidity and how you can drive force. You can steer force through your body. And um, I hadn't really thought of movement in that way before. Um, but... But almost all the work that we do in Sistema is this softening and tightening in specific fashions to steer forces through the body in a way that you can get your results. Yeah. Uh, you need the softness to escape certain shapes that you need to make, um, mm. but you still need to be able to transmit force through this rapidly evolving kaleidoscope of of muscle and bone and so that was just a really fascinating and I'd, I'd also been interested in the Feldenkrais method because of the way that they explain movement and nervous system learning hmm. so uh, Sistema just introduced me to all these other things mostly because I wanted to understand Sistema better and I guess that's from there is where um, I started to try to integrate all this stuff yeah so, it, so there's a couple of things I'd like to get into there kind of the pick out and um, one of them is this idea about um, having a structure to work from, and I'm not talking about that in the sen in the systema sense of like having a physical spine structure or a way that you arrange your body. I mean more in the sense of a cognitive structure or kind of a pedagogic structure that you can hang your existing mental hooks off, right, and related to things yeah. you're already doing, and then press forward. Because that that first thing that you said about how you trained for a while and then you felt a little bit lost, and everybody kind of gets that and feels like they have to reinvent themselves, but sometimes I think that's a, that's a function of us realizing 
that we we think we've got certain things mastered or we think we've, we're good at certain things and then we just train with somebody way better or you you know work with uh, Emmanuel or Vladimir or something and then you realize that oh wow I've got a lot to learn and then you have to you have like a necessary ego check and a, and a, an adjustment of what the goals are right so there's one way but there is this kind of phenomenon that sometimes um, and I found it as well and I've seen it in other people that have got to instruct a level and beyond where they they do that and then they kind of there there is a moment that helps to kind of restructure them and more than three or four people have mentioned that Constantine has actually provided that structure for them <laughs> you know a few people that I know including myself and I remember a moment about 10 years ago at the um, immersion camp where um, it was uh, Michael Vladimir and Constantine were all there and and there was, I think it was like about day three they had a really strange mix of people that year where they had lots and lots of beginners lots and lots of people showing up just dipping a toe in like 10 hour, 10 to 12 hours of training a day with some of the best system of people in the world, you know, just always kind of buggers my mind really sometimes how people can decide to make that their first experience, you know, it's kind of strange. But anyway, it was, um, it was a very different experience from a couple of years before. It was a lot of instructors and, and less beginners. Um, and they just had real trouble kind of pitching to the middle and teaching. Michael was showing things and like the, the high level instructors were really getting it. The new people were getting nothing at all. And the people in the middle were kind of, uh, sorry, the high-level instructors were kind of like, yeah, we just want to move on. And uh, and they just had trouble kind of teaching to the middle. And in the end, they did something which I've never seen them do before, which is literally split out people on ability level and say, okay, instructors go with Michael and everybody else go with Constantine. And and I was kind of like a new instructor in training at that point. And, um, and they said, to, and Valerie sort of said, you know, you can go with, you know, Michael and that kind of stuff. And I actually elected to go with Constantine because he was nodding to some psychological kind of concepts in the morning that were just making sense of things for me. And that afternoon was completely trans transformative for me, where he just taught a whole bunch of things, things that would later go into the manual about that you have to build your foundation of training upon, first of all, your motivation of why you're training. And then you have to build your um, body so that it's capable of, of doing things, of, of holding structure and of um, delivering force and of absorbing strikes and things then you can start to mess with your psyche. There's no point in messing with your psyche a lot if your body is just terrified and can't apply or withstand force, right? Because <laughs> it will just, you, your, your, your body is afraid in and of itself, like even before you get to the mind and the emotions. Uh, and then you can start to layer in things like wrestling and striking and then more complex things like working with weapons, multiple attackers, clothing, things like that. So you had this kind of neurological progression where it's just like, well, this needs to be in place before you move to this. And this really helped me a lot to kind of pace out what I thought I should be looking at. And it gave me, I don't know, kind of not an excuse or like a, a justification for being like, okay, I'm going to spend my entire next year just trying to develop my body and figure out how to get this combative body thing that moves, but it still has integrity and all that kind of stuff. And it really turned me around. And I've talked to Jeff Soderman and a couple of other instructors I know, and they said a similar kind of thing that they were like, they, they loved the method. They were getting really into it. And then like five years in, five, six years in, they just felt a little bit lost. Like, how do I structure my learning? And Constantine provided some sort of anchor that let them go forward that way. I think it's a bit different now because the um, I think Vladimir is being a lot more didactic and he's laying out more frameworks in the DVDs and, and training and Michael's doing the same sort of thing. But in the beginning, at least, it seems that especially people have been training longer than us, you know, right back in the beginning. And um, Vladimir and Michael didn't really offer a lot of guidelines about which way to go. You know, they were just like, let's train and figure it out. Um, so I, how important do you think that structure is? So a long way to ask a, a small question, but that cognitive structure of like, how do we approach training? That's yeah, that's such a deep question. Like there's so much to think about there. Um, Emmanuel often says that confusion 
in and of itself is part of the training. Like he'll just, he'll just mix it up mm. and then see how we have to figure it out. Um, and, um, sometimes like in the Feldenkrais method, um, which I don't know, we can talk about more later. Um, they deliberately introduce ambiguity sometimes just because that in itself can be a stimulate, a stimulus for making people reorganize their understanding. Hmm. Um, for me, when I guess when I get lost, that that structure, I guess, and also from your story, uh, for others, it can be so motivating to suddenly see some sort of pathway forward. Hmm. Um, but everything is always changing, you know, like for some phases of the, of my training, having that structure has been such a great way to think about what to do. And then, uh, after you use it for a while, you got to throw it out and then, hmm. uh, just see what emerges again. Um, so I, I don't know if I, if I have a clear answer on that one, what I've been doing for myself is I've been trying to build something like a pyramid, like, uh, what is, what is my base? Like what if, if we had to break down the fundamental components that you need to have in place, hmm. uh, what would they be? What's, what's the underlying structure? And, uh, and then, so in the example that you gave, motivation was one of the initial building blocks. Why are you doing this, et cetera? And that naturally has a big impact on what you focus on and hmm. um, how you spend your time. Yeah. Um, I guess for me, I would say that it's, it's very important, but then you can't be tied to it because it's like a, a bit of a dogma. You gotta, yeah, I agree. You gotta periodically throw it out and, and start over. Yeah, I mean, something that occurs to me is that um, I think ambiguity and confusion are good things, um, but not if they're the norm. <laughs> if all, if yes. all you have is ambiguity and confusion. For example, I mean, Feldenkrais method, I mean, I'm not enormously well-versed in it. I've done some courses, but I'm not, like, qualified to teach it or things like that. But I've used the exercises in both Sistema classes and in my stress-proof training that I deliver to exec groups and things because I think it's a really good way of just trying to reintroduce people to their bodies and, and realize that they've literally forgotten how to move parts of them sometimes, you know, the whole idea of sensory mm -hmm. motor amnesia. Um, but to me, Feldenkrais is, it's exploratory, but it's exploratory in very specific ways. It's like, okay, lie down and then just move just a finger without, you know, <laughs> without tensing any other parts of the body and just sort of see where that movement is coming from. See if you can do that without doing this. And it's, so there's, there are specific cues to trying to get you to, to explore in certain areas. And then once you've done that, you can kind of, um, introduce things to confuse yourself or you know introduce some randomness and then find it against the backdrop but it's but it's quite specific in what it's trying to do isn't it or is there something that i'm missing about the methodology um no i think you've got it but the the um specific thing that you're doing the specific movement the finger whatever you could pick any movement but it just it's like a microcosmic a microcosm of a learning template mm. um and you can repeat that template for all sorts of situations. Um, I guess I'm trying to think of an example here. Um, you, it's almost like a science experiment, right? Yeah. Like you do multiple trials, you move your finger this way, you move it that way, you place your attention somewhere else, you move the finger again, and you build this high resolution map of what's actually happening in yourself. And um, that's quite difficult to do in Sistema, at least with the partner, mm. because the conditions are not stable. Yeah. Uh, and so it's 
we don't, we don't really get the same cause and effect relationships as an experiment where there's only a single variable changing. Hmm. But then uh, that's, a, that's a conundrum that the scientific community has always faced, right? The more you control to get a solid result in an experiment, the less applicable it is to reality because you're, you're filtering out all the things that make the situation what it is. I was going to say that has direct relevance to how we train though, doesn't it? Because there's, um, you know, a lot of the time we'll do exploratory kind of um, drills. For example, somebody attacks you with a knife and you just have to see how your body moves in inverted commas naturally. You know, what's your natural response? And people vary in what their natural response can be based on what they've learned before, what's kind of worked for them, you know, what the fears and experiences of being around edge weapons are and things like that. Um, and so we try to limit the drills in certain ways. We say, okay, the guy can't just slash randomly at you. He can only stab or he can slash and stab randomly, but he has to go very slowly, you know, or, or, or something like that. You know, we limit the drills in certain ways to try and cut the variables down. But then the more you limit those drills, again, the less applicable to reality they get right so it's it's, it's i think there's a direct corollary there between what they what happens in science and what happens in the in the systema lab yeah yeah and that's the that's the kind of great thing about it is that uh we can look at the teaching approach and we can look at our classes and um borrow lessons from contemporary scientific approaches in terms of how we might structure it or um, like i've always been interested in this anders erickson guy who I don't know if it was Malcolm Gladwell or if it was Erickson himself who talked about the 10,000 hours to, um, yeah, master develop expertise. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But, um, I've, I've sometimes wondered, like, do we do deliberate practice in Sistema? Um, we don't necessarily structure it so tightly in order to do that. Mm. And I've wondered if it would be beneficial for us to do more of that, but then, at the same time, you could be deliberately practicing just the uh, sensitivity to yourself to organically organize yourself to whatever is happening. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I guess there's like a different, it's like an onion. There's so many layers to look at it from Yeah. that uh, we could talk about it for ages, but uh, it's just such an interesting topic. Yeah. I guess the, um, I guess the thing with the mastery is that most of the research that's come afterwards has kind of pointed out that the 10,000 hours to mastery thing is, kind of a generalizing benchmark like it's difficult to get to what we normally call mastery ahead of that goal but you can easily do ten thousand hours of mindless practice and not get to mastery yes right? so that's exactly. that's kind of the subtext that most people pull out of it so it's a yeah so i guess it depends how mindful your practice is if you just show up to training and fart around there's no guarantee you'll achieve mastery right, right. and the way they structure the, the way they define deliberate practice i don't remember the exact definition but it's like it's rigorous, man. Mm. Like there's defined metrics. Um, you practice it over and over again. You're like right at the edge of your limits. Mm. Uh, you usually have some sort of coach. Like it's tough work. Yeah, it's really tough work. Gotcha. Yeah, that's what we trade off there. So, can you tell me a little bit more about how you got into somatic experiencing and for the um, for the benefit of people who aren't kind of aware of all the differences and how it happens? Like, what's the difference between Feldenkrais and somatic experiencing and some other kind of methodologies that people might be aware of, like something like even something as remote as yoga, something like that. Mm. Yeah. So uh, Feldenkrais method is the way they would describe it is a learning approach. And sometimes they describe it as learning how to learn. It's uh, there's a variety of different exercises. There's two ways of approaching the Feldenkrais method. There's 
uh, awareness through movement classes, which is where someone would give you verbal instructions. There's no demonstration. You just work with the verbal instructions, and they somewhat direct your attention to different places of your body while you're doing movements. Hmm. So, uh, you know, lie on the floor, feel your weight, uh, feel, the, feel the places where your body is not touching the ground, so like the space uh, above your heel but below your calf, hmm. um, your neck, whatever. So basically they're, they're building this clearer bodily map and um, directing you to do certain movements and you see what's happening. Hmm. And uh, in the process of doing that, it, it really can help you identify some of your habitual patterns. And uh, in doing so, you can let them go. And uh, there's some amazing experiences I've had where I stand up at the end of a lesson. It's just totally, I feel like a different person. Mm. So that's, uh, that's one part of the Feldenkrais method. And they also have hands-on work, which is functional integration. Mm. Uh, som- somatic experiencing, on the other hand, it's um, an approach developed by a guy named Peter Levine. And it was, it's used by very often psychotherapists, social workers, other types of counselors, usually people with some sort of professional helping, like a helping professional background to help people overcome trauma. Mm. Um, Trauma could be defined as something that's like very overwhelming to the nervous system. And it's not necessarily the events per se, it's the residual after effect in the body. Yeah. Uh, and they sometimes refer to incomplete survival responses. So uh, maybe you're driving in your car and then you realize that uh, you're about to get T-boned and you, you start to look towards the threat, but then you get hit and it's, it's like, it's not finished Yeah, that the motor instructions are still firing. You're still defensively bracing. And, um, after the accident, like the, that, that was never completed. And so that you can have some residual symptoms, uh, tightness, inability to move, pain. So you're kind of caught in a trauma loop kind of thing, you know, kind of recreating it in your body consistently because nobody's showed you how to let it, um, let it go. <laughs> yes. Yeah. And so somatic experiencing is this approach to gently tap into this, um, what feels like this deep well of highly charged, unreleased energy, which, uh, which normally gets mobilized in situations where extreme survival conditions are being met. So, so how does it? How does a somatic experiencing session look? How does it differ from, for example, from the verbal instructions and cues of a Feldenkrais session? Yeah, a somatic experiencing method. Um, there would be. You know, it's interesting that you ask this because there are a lot of similarities now that I think about it, but. The somatic experiencing method usually is like two people facing each other. It's more of a conversation. Mm. And um, it's usually one-on-one. Although I think there are some people who try to use uh, somatic experiencing with couples. But Mm. they would probably get you to, like first you need to um, get settled in your environment. Because one of the first cues that an animal, of which we are one type, uh, needs to go through when they're entering into a trauma or leaving a trauma is orientation. So seeing the environment. Yeah. And so even the setup of a somatic experiencing session is very deliberate. Like where would you sit? How close do you need to be to the door? Um, do you need to see the door or do you need to see a window? Do you need to have some sort of escape? Like that's, those are some considerations that are more common for people who have experienced 
domestic abuse or uh, returning veterans and that sort of thing. So it's, it's essentially then to kind of set up the sensation of safety and security so that they then become open to other suggestions. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, like the analogy they often give is animals at a watering hole, they're drinking water and then there's some sort of sound and everyone's head sort of pops up. They start scanning with their eyes and ears. Mm. And if, if it was nothing, you know, like maybe a tree branch fell, they go back to normal. So orientation is that first response to something that's potentially threatening. Yeah. And it's also what you would do to get back to your normal routine. So, mm. uh, there's this orientation phase, and then um, usually this trauma loop, that, as you described, it pops up in some form. Like whatever whatever brought them to the session. Um, oh, I have recurring nightmares. I have uh, pain on the right side of my neck. Hmm. These sorts of things. You can start to ask them a little bit about their history and um, delve into the physical response to that to that thinking process. Hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's, so, um, so is it more of a matter of emphasis, the difference then really? Cause it's like one-on-one trauma-based working from a, a more kind of gentle start place. And is it, so the emphasis is more on kind of specific treatment versus exploration. Yeah. Like uh, Feldenkrais practitioners don't really, they're not supposed to sell their services as if they're treating someone. Yeah. And so, uh, and they're much more prescriptive. They'll tell you what to do, like feel your feet, uh, try to move your toe. And um, those specific lessons of which there are probably thousands, mm. just they cover all sorts of different parts of the body, how you relate your head movement to the movement of your eyes, etc. Yeah. Whereas somatic experiencing is much more organic and uh, really depends on that person's life experiences. And, um, and works with what they call coupling dynamics. So there's this great acronym that they use called SIBAM. S is uh, sensation, I is image, B is behavior, A is affect or emotion, and M is meaning. Hmm. And uh, those all need to be linked together or sometimes pulled apart if they're, if they're stuck together. So Let's say I'm thinking of a difficult situation. I might get a particular physical sensation. There might be an image of that sensation that comes to mind. Um, I might start fiddling with my thumbs, like a behavior, or I could, I could sort of change my posture. Uh, I might get an overwhelming sense of fear, and I might have some sort of, some sort of meaning about that situation, like, uh, uh, I'm never going to be good enough to do public speaking. Yeah. For example, there's a story that you tell yourself. And, uh, and so sometimes the, the image and the sensation, like you can work with those to just touch into them and see how they change. So if it's an incomplete survival response, just like the T-bone example we talked about earlier, mm. we might find that slowly moving, uh, like you might feel some pain on the right side of your neck. And slowly looking to the right, which is what you, your body had planned to do when it realized you're about to get into a car accident, it might suddenly release a torrent of, of fear inside your body and, and your arm might want to organically move. Yeah. And that's very different than telling someone to move their arm yeah. right? because it's not connected to the underlying uh, motor instructions that are somewhat dormant. So, so there's an aspect of it being different in terms of who's leading the practice then. It sounds like somatic experiencing is more kind of trainee-led 
and yeah, uh, Feldenkrais is more trainer led. Right? So. Yes, uh, that's that's a nice way of putting it. Hi, folks. Glenn here. As Systema for Life approaches its 100th episode, I'd like to take a minute to thank everyone who has contributed to the show, all our listeners, and to everyone who's offered requests, encouragement, and feedback along the way. I also need to ask a quick favor. We have already enjoyed two years of high-quality interviews, insights, and ideas on Systema for Life. We'd like to keep the show going, and we want to keep it open to all, but we need your help to do it. It takes time, effort, and more than little cash to produce a podcast more than two grand a year at current hosting and production rates. We have no paid advertising, and we do it all off our own backs with help from listeners and generous supporters like you. So if you're a fan of Systema for Life and you get real value from the ideas and the conversations we create, then please take a few minutes now to subscribe at www.ncsystema.com support. Support at whatever level you feel like you can afford. Even $3 or $5 a month is a help. Think of it as buying us a beer or a cup of coffee once a month for our travels. So visit ncsystema.com support and use the buttons on the page to select your preferred monthly or annual support level. You'll receive a confirmation on sign up and you can cancel at any time. Your support really does help ensure the survival of the show. With gratitude, thank you very much. So how have you um, integrated what what you've learned from somatic experiencing and other disciplines into into how you train. So the the really great thing about somatic experiencing is it forces you to understand what the feeling of safety is. I know that sounds kind of funny, but uh, no, not at all. Some people have maybe gone through most of their life without actually feeling safe about uh, about the world. Hmm. And uh, everyone has different triggers. You know, this all goes to attachment theory, you know, like how are your caregivers and so on. And uh, a lot of that interest of mine really came from Constantine, right? Because he, he digs into this stuff so much about fear. Yeah. Um, and so I went to a couple of somatic experiencing training sessions. The, there's like a three beginner segments, three intermediate and two advanced. I haven't done the advanced, but it was, it was fascinating to me because in the, the first segment, there was four days. And for the first three days, I, I couldn't stand it. Like the, the, you know, it's not cheap to go to these things. Hmm. And the, the first, uh, day almost is what it felt like. It was just people introducing themselves. Hmm. I was like, Oh my God, like, <laughs> wasting my time or <laughs> so is it are these sessions designed primarily for like clinicians or like psychologists that are going to use them or therapists yeah. that are going to use it that's mostly who it's for yeah i was kind of surprised they let me in hmm. uh, but uh but they did i explained that i think it could be relevant for my job as well as to systema because a lot of stuff in healthcare um does rely on teamwork and communication Hmm. And uh, I was curious how, you know, like burnout is a huge issue right now and how much of that relates to uh, a clinician's sense of safety. Yeah. Uh, we know bullying still happens in the operating room. Hmm. Uh, strong power differentials are certainly a point of contention in some clinical teams. Hmm. So anyways, I was, I think I, I managed to worm my way into the training a little bit through that. And, um, 
Yes, I can't remember where we left off here, but uh, after after three days of this really slow discussion and, and just talking about what you're experiencing, on the fourth day, it was like something shifted. Mm. Uh, and I was just able to take my time, like everything seemed to slow down. And I realized that, you know, I've, I've been going through, I don't know, all of my life, but certainly for a number of years with this like high-paced uh, I don't know, drive inside of me, like stuff has to get done. I need to do this. I need to do that. Yeah. Uh, um, and I'm sure some people tackle it in various ways. Like some people realize that through meditation and, uh, you know, mindfulness has become such a big topic. Yeah. But, uh, I really, I really felt it. And, um, it really speaks to this cognitive scaffold that we were talking about, like this framework or this structure that we use to understand systema because there's some things that are so fundamental to the way that we interpret and perceive life hmm. uh, that we don't see them it's sort of like fish in the water they don't realize they're in water yeah or that's what people say sure. um what there's stuff about safety and, the, and just the way we feel that uh we might not realize could be different and um yeah, I wanted to understand how that type of nervous system regulation might impact my systemic practice and and how we teach it as well. You know, like yeah, just just there's just so much to it. So, did you come to any conclusions yet? Um, With things yeah. that you've tried out, it is it just it's so personal for me. Um. Well, okay. In the in the somatic experience of community, a lot of what they talk about is in the early years, the child is um, somewhat borrowing the regulated capacity of the caregiver. Sure, co-regulation. And, yeah. Yes, and um, a lot of I think a lot of what we're trying to do in Systema is to build that regulative capacity, so to speak, and to offer it to our partners. You know, when, like when we're addressing aggression, there's uh, this battle of whether the dysregulation will spread or whether the co-regulation will prevail. Um, and how do you do that? Like you need to be so centered in yourself and, um, and you can, when you find that co-regulation with a partner in training, and I don't know if you've experienced this or other systemic practitioners have, but I've sometimes been working with someone and they're, you feel it in their movements, right? There's this uh, tension, there's this sharpness, yeah. and you just you just pressure them with gentleness for yeah. long enough, mm. and they they realize it's not dangerous. Like we're pushing each other, we're wrestling, but something changes in them, and um, it suddenly it just becomes more enjoyable for for both of us. And yeah, and you start learning uh, more too, usually at that point. Yeah, and I think that's really interesting. Like, what what factors generate that change, and how do you become a stronger force for co-regulation? Mm. Like, not just in class, but in life. And yeah, uh, yeah, and that seems to be um. So, so both of these things. So, there's kind of two aspects to what you said. One is slowing way down to notice yourself, to feel yourself and other people, and to really understand you know, how you relate to fear and how you relate to safety and all of those things, right? And this is an instruction that comes from Constantine a lot, right? When he's talking about doing drills, he's like, people are too busy sometimes trying to achieve something in the in the drills that they're training to, to actually notice 
the really good stuff, you know, which is really slowing down to try and notice where your fear is beginning, where you're starting to manifest tension and, and just how you're feeling about the whole situation. You know, what is your state um, and all those little voices that are in your head. Um, and the other aspect is training with a goal of kind of co-regulating your partner, even if they're like kind of starting out tense or afraid um, and trying to bring them to a place where they're actually kind of pliable and where they're comfortable with kind of what's going on, even if it's quite aggressive and you're punching each other and stuff like that, right? You can still get into a place where it doesn't feel sharp, where it still feels like you're building each other and things like that. But these are both interesting things because I'm fascinated by both of these things. And in the way that I teach, I like to bring those forwards like into the forefront. They're really what makes Sistema interesting for me and especially what makes Sistema transferable to wider life and relationships in the world, right? Um, But for some people... They just, they just seem pathologically averse to this idea of slowing down that much, right? And pathologically averse to the idea that there's value in training a martial art which purports to try to co-regulate people. And the objection seems to be, well, this is dumb. You know, if somebody really means you harm and they and they really have nasty, vicious intent, then you don't need to be trying to co-regulate them. You just need to be trying to you know, deanimate them, (laughs) stop them moving or or render them unconscious. And that's that's your first and foremost, that's what you should be doing. And that if you go too far down this rabbit hole of attempted emotional regulation and trying to make somebody comfortable so that you can do a complex biomechanical takedown or something, that you just kind of, you end up deluding yourself and you'd be better off just learning how to do a, a good solid, you know, MMA takedown or something like that. It seems like that, this, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but this seems like the, um, the reaction that sometimes I get from teaching like this way, right? Um, And then the same thing with slowing down as well. Like you can get people to slow down for a while and try and notice things in themselves. And they seem happy to do that for a while, but they won't do it for like four hours straight, right? They'll do it it for like half an hour and then you have to show them some fun and be like, all right, now let's speed it up and see what you've learned, you know, and things like that. So you have to kind of constantly kind of phase between fast and slow and between co-regulation and allowing somebody to deregulate you a little bit and fighting a little bit and then coming back to discovering yourself a little bit. And, and Vladimir seems quite realistic about the fact that all those things are necessary. Um, but the more I, I see coming out of kind of the Moscow school um, from Michael and from Daniel and, and from people that have trained a lot, Edgar schools and people that train with them a lot, they seem just completely um, dedicated to the co-regulation approach and to the slowing down to notice approach as if that's the only thing that matters. And I'm, I'm that could well be true, you know, but I'm, I'm seeing a lot of pushback to that approach now in the systemic community a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I, I totally hear you. And, uh, I think there's a sort of inbuilt tension there because when certainly I guess there's a marketing issue. Like if you're, if you're teaching a martial art, yeah. there's this notion of combatives and, and being tough enough to do what needs to be done. Yeah. Um, and that's like, I've really been struggling with this. Uh, and it's, part of how I'm still trying to build this pyramid because I feel like if we can graphically illustrate where, like which part of the pyramid we're working on, Mm. it becomes more clear to people how we're fitting everything together. Yeah. Like there's really no point. Well, okay. I won't say there's no point. Like you, you can do the hard stuff. You can, uh, rip the eyes, whatever, do whatever you need to, to survive. If that's, uh, that's what we're training. Like this goes a little bit to the deliberate practice piece. Like what specifically are we working with this exercise? Yeah. And you can take the same exercise and you can probably apply it 
from a physical level, you can apply it at a safety co-regulation level, mm-hmm. or you can apply it at a combative level. It's just which part are you emphasizing? Yeah. And um, the and it's just a, it's a bit of a complicated relationship. It's not linear. Like you can be effective with a straight up, uh, um, I don't know, tactical tactical work. Sure. But it's it's more effective when it's built on a stable platform where you where you're still like a human being and not a, a ravenous animal. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, I'll get. I'll give you. I'll give you a specific example. So I, I taught a knife seminar last uh, Saturday, right? And it was um, and it there wasn't a ton of people there, and most of the people that were there were like fairly long time students have been training for several years, right? And um, and the goal was that we would do some pretty hard and fast stuff up front. You know, we would like see tra- somebody trying to pull out a knife and stab you with it, and you're trying to prevent the draw or take them down or sense them removing their hand from the fight. So very very kind of practical and. Um, tactile kind of drills, right? Kind of working that way, and then into the second half, I went more into the kinds of things that Michael likes to show, right? Um, like how to move a, a knife around your own body or through space in such a way that the other person can't quite grasp it, right? Or even if they have hold of it, that they, they think they have the knife, but their tension pattern stops them from genuinely taking it, right? And you're constantly leading the tension patterns in such a way that it's hard for them to keep hold of it. Um, and then this kind of to my mind, I'm like, well, this is deeply valuable work because as you put these things together, then when your hand actually goes to the knife, you can reposition the person. You can work with their tension intentionally, uh, in internally, like immediately, so that it's more difficult for them to retain the knife if you're trying to disarm or you know um, do anything sneaky with it or redirect or something like that. So to my mind, the the internal stuff and the slow work and the sensitivity all builds into ultimate effectiveness. Um, but one of my students who had a long background in like Filipino martial arts and other knife things. And he's a great guy. I love the bits. He's great. And um, just at the end of it, he was just like, yeah, you know, it was a lot of fun, but um, you know, some of the things that we're trying, I'm like, yeah, I could see Vlad doing it or Michael doing it or, but they're kind of mutants. You know, <laughs> he's like, they just have this amazing ability for me. I'm like, yeah, this is a, this is a might fanciful. It was his words. <laughs> you know, He's like, it's a bit fantastical to think about doing these, kind of fine motor skill sensitivity based things with a knife if somebody's trying to stab you with a knife and on the one hand i was like fair point you know if you don't feel like you can use these skills right now you might be better off relying on the stuff that you know works crashing and smashing from filipino martial arts things like that you know um but on the other hand i the point about well they're just mutants i'm like well they i don't think they were born that way they got there through this kind of training you know and it's um and maybe my faith in that is a little bit misplaced but I don't think so because I can do it a lot better than somebody who can't and Vlad and Michael can do it a lot better than me. So I can still see a continuum in which that kind of training has led to abilities in myself and other people that I can see who do very, very well in controlling conflicts and things like that, um, that, that we wouldn't have had if we'd just studied the, the, the external approach. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, totally. For sure. And, and when you work with Emmanuel, you know, he was down here a few weeks ago teaching a whole weekend seminar and, and essentially, he's 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 brilliant at establishing control from that first moment of contact. I mean, from his positioning and the way he puts hands on you. And Vlad and Michael can do it just with just with where they stand. You know, <laughs> they're literally the the relational positioning. They've already started to control the conflict there. But it's, it's to me, those things are intangibles that you you can't learn by by breaking it down in terms of internal biomechanics, uh, external biomechanics. Right? They they have to be felt. They have to. They're a function of your ability to understand your emotional patterns and how they might be affecting the whole relationship. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm also confused. Like, I don't know how to bridge the gap. Like 
I've always wondered, if, is there some sort of analogy that will make it more clear? Uh, like, certainly for strength sports, everyone, like, if you're lifting a ton of weight, let's say you're deadlifting, mm-hmm. everyone knows position matters. Like, everything matters. Even if your grip is off mm-hmm. by a few millimeters, like, you can feel it. If you're moving, you're moving from one house to another. Like, if you're getting under your fridge, mm-hmm. everyone knows there's, like, a good position to do that. And there's, like, some fiddling around with the position of your feet and your back just to get to get just right um but then when we do these exercises where it's like it's exactly the same thing with a partner Mm. um i don't know it gets dismissed yeah but i think i mean i've tried to fish for analogies myself with other kind of physical disciplines and pursuits and that the, every single analogy that i find every metaphor that i try and draw that's that, that makes it every comparison i try and draw seems to fall short you know in one way because it's sometimes i mean people are comfortable for example with the idea that golf right is a that there's a lot of physical skill to it you're hitting a tiny ball with a, a tiny surface on the end of a long stick right and you're trying to hit it like 250 300 yards to get it in a tiny hole it's ridiculous really when you think about what you're trying to do <laughs> you know but people practice for years my father is like a devoted golfer my mother too right and they practice for decades and decades until they can do this consistently right um over long distances and there's so much going on there in terms of fine motor skill and weight distribution and the the, the sequence activation of muscles right um, but they just do it over and over and over again, and they get this swing. They find their swing, they find their position, and they can reproduce it reliably. But then, if something psychologically gets to them, right, and if they're in a tournament or something, and they just get thrown by something, right, the wind is up a little bit, and a couple of shots go off, or they miss a putt on the previous one that they knew they should have got, that can throw off their entire swing, and all of a sudden, the psychology is affecting their ability to produce that fine motor skill. And I think people in that and in maybe like archery or something like that understand this relationship between like well at a high level everybody's making the same movements it's not that you've got some revolutionary golf swing that's different to everybody else's or you haven't got some revolutionary bow draw right everybody's just trying to make a repeatable consistent movement that's precise um and at that point the psychological training becomes critical and they're like yeah high level golfers meditate and high level archers you know <laughs> will do you know be in a on a sensory deprivation tank you know to try and master their minds and and they understand that there's the physical but an even higher level once you've kind of mastered the physical is the psychological and the emotional that way so i can see that but then the problem is that neither of those things are combated right you you're kind of psychologically competing with somebody else um, but you're not. Nobody's nudging you while you're trying to take your bow shot, and nobody's <laughs> nudging you while you're trying to take your swing, um, or nobody's angry at you and genuinely trying to deregulate you while you're doing it. So it breaks down, and then you can kind of get into the the psychological game in boxing or something like that, and how that's or team sports. But it's just not quite the same, is it? No, but I, I I'm always hoping that people can make the leap, you know. But uh, but maybe that's just not happening. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I think it is. I, I see people who make the leap, make the leap. But it's, um, I, I mean, the reason why I bring it up is because I think I feel like I think we have maybe a, a responsibility as instructors and I don't know advocates of Systema, you know, to, to explain to people what it's really doing and and what what the potential for it is. And if if they're not getting it, then somehow that's got to be on us a little bit, right? There's, we've got to take some of the responsibility for not being able to explain it to them properly. Exactly. Yeah, and that's. Uh... That's why I love just, uh, you know, we could probably talk more, but I'd love this, uh, this framework of just how it all comes together. Because if people could see it, maybe, maybe they would get through better. But uh, 
you know, everyone learns differently. So there's probably not a, a one solution fits all type of thing going on. Yeah, definitely. So, so you mentioned a little bit um, that you've kind of started, you, you're building your own pyramid in a sense. Um, and you mentioned motivation being a cool thing on that. What other things would you draw out? So let's say you could give some advice to a, a young Mark again, who's starting off and he's just getting frustrated because people are taking him down. And he doesn't understand why. If you could offer a fundamental framework to a young Mark, what, what are three things that you would put up front and say, look, you really need to look at these three things before, before you start getting above yourself? Uh, good question. Um, like one of the first things that I probably need to make a differentiation of is, um, are you like there's in training, we seem to be preparing sometimes for something that will happen outside of training. Mm. But, uh, a lot of work can go into just being good at training, uh, like how to give and receive feedback, mm. uh, when you're training with a partner, being like giving some positive reinforcement does so much to make the training more enjoyable um, and recognizing when good feedback is is deserved. Um, that's that's one thing. And I would probably tell myself a lot about uh, emotional embodiments. So there's a guy I studied with just a little bit. His name is Raja Selvam, and he teaches this thing called integral somatic psychology. And it's about uh, emotional embodiment. So if you, it's interesting, I'd never considered it this way, but he was saying that when you have an emotion, you experience it in a certain place. And there's all, you know, there's all sorts of poetic language that people have used over the years. Like, uh, when she left, my heart broke into a thousand pieces and it felt like there was a black hole that would never go away. Mm. So there's this, this visceral sensory motor experience and there's an, an innate resistance to that. And, um, the resistance is a sort of suppression hmm. and you need to learn to sort of allow that emotion spread. Like his whole work is, um, if you have to hold something heavy, is it better with one hand or with two? Hmm. It's better with two. So try to hold the emotion with more of your body. And, uh, he'd shown some interesting research where people clicked where they were feeling emotions in their body. And usually with intense emotions, uh, they lose contact with their legs. Like, hmm. If, I don't know what it would be like for you, but like when I'm getting angry, I can feel the heat in my face and yeah. maybe like more energy in my in my hands and my arms. Yeah. The the legs are not like really part of that experience necessarily. No, they kind of go cold. Yeah, yeah, they kind of go cold and out of the out of the picture, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, That's interesting. So, in Japanese, it's really interesting. You know, I lived in Japan a couple of years, and they have all these colorful phrases for experiencing emotions that I that I didn't know about before. And the, and the one for getting angry is atamaga kita, which means literally it came to my head. Like it's everything, everything got pushed up. And the other one is haranga tatsu, which is my stomach is standing up. So they have two types of anger, like one in which there's a pressure that moves up to the head. Another one where your stomach is just kind of standing up and wants to be, <laughs> which I thought was really fascinating. Then they've got a whole bunch of those. Oh, that's yeah. I, I love that stuff. Um, <laughs> it's uh, like, was it Daniel Goleman? He wrote his book about emotional intelligence. Yeah. Like one of the first steps is just to differentiate the types of emotions that, that you have. Mm. Like, uh, I think in the academic literature, there's what, six or seven primary emotions, yeah. anger, sadness, fear, whatever. Disgust. But from a, yeah. from a sensory motor emotion perspective, there's thousands. Yeah. Right. And, um, like if we're, 
if we're moving beyond these initial stages, like when I first started of thinking about Sistema's fighting and thinking about Sistema's self-understanding, these are just like these are the basis of the pyramid that will serve you in all of life and understanding you like using the training as a as an experimental lab to see how your emotions move and change and when you feel safe and when you don't feel safe and uh, that's just so fascinating because that also relates to how open you can be with your partner like hey uh, like that was really uh, too hard like it would be hard for me to say that I think at the beginning I didn't want to admit weakness I was shy uh, it's it's incredibly progressive to become more and more authentic about who you are and what your limits are and um, being aware of these emotions and being able to communicate them. It's like, it's such a integral part of training. And um, I don't know if, if you like, I don't know if the people who are uh, commenting on Sistema videos and YouTube saying how we'll never survive in an MMA cage are really thinking about that and, and to be fair, I don't know if we I think, articulate... I think we can definitely say they're not. <laughs> it's fair to say they're not. Yeah, yeah and like, do, do we need to say more about that? Like, I, it's a little bit, it's a kind of a nuanced topic to make personally available to a person. Like, they sort of need to experience it. And uh, like, I would have benefited from some coaching, I guess, because as a kid, that's what you're sort of getting as a coaching. Like, oh, um, you know, you didn't get the chocolate you wanted, you must feel sad. And then you're like, oh, okay, the sensory motor thing that I'm experiencing is sadness, potentially. Mm. Like, it needs to be named, it needs to be labeled, and you need to develop some fluency with psycho-emotional sensory motor states. Mm. Um, and Sistema can help with that, but it's not necessarily articulated in that way. Mm. Excellent. Okay, so figuring out your why of training, your motivation and then figuring out how to train well, how to learn how to learn, and also how to create a learning environment with your partner so that you can get the most out of the training experience without constantly referencing to some external application that you're going to do with this drill. And then thirdly, thirdly, just you know, figuring out your entire basis for emotional psychosomatic regulation. So it's simple, right? <laughs> yeah, no, no small thing there. <laughs> no, that's great. But yeah, it's, it's important though. I think, you know, it's... um. Because I think that's probably, I mean, for me at least, that's more inspiring than just more push-ups, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. For um, somebody who's starting out and having trouble, like, yeah, you'll get it, more push-ups. I mean, that's not that's not usually the, the most helpful advice sometimes. No. Well, I mean, for some people, maybe. I, yeah. I, I don't know. Yeah, uh, I guess so. <laughs> well, great, mate. So I'm being mindful of your time. I know you're, um, uh, you're on call there at a hospital and somebody might code at any moment so i don't want to <laughs> keep you from uh, from saving lives any longer than is necessary but thanks so much for joining us uh, today and i'd really like to kind of expand on this at some point if you're open to coming back onto the the podcast and talking some more about it yeah for sure thanks so much for the chat i um there's so much to talk about and and i'd love to hear more about what you do you know i don't know how much you actually get to ch chat about that on your own podcast but yeah great well maybe we can flip the script at some point and you can ask yeah. <laughs> questions That's about good. it Great, great, Mark. And, and, if, and if people want to train with you or um, connect with you, um, they just find you via Fight Club? Yeah, exactly. So uh, fight-club.ca is Emmanuel's uh, school, and I'm, I'm there often. So it uh, would be great to meet more people coming to train and visit Toronto. Marvellous. Well, thanks again, Mark, and hopefully I'll, well, I'll see you in a couple of months. I'll be coming up there. 
Sounds good. Thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about classes, workshops, and seminars at NC Sistema, please visit us online at www.ncsistema.com.